1: I'm uh-huh. not uh-huh. uh-huh. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, season 30, episode 19. Coming up on the show, we've got Psychic Lightning, The Whispers of the Desert Wraiths, and The Children of the Invisibles. I'm your host, Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. What a book I have for you today, Ben. Although you
0: have to bear with me, I've taken a little bit of a translation license in the way that I put this book together because it's all in Spanish. Just gonna note, I was gonna say, how do you know it's a good book when you can't read it? <laughs> I had to translate it. I took an entire day to scan and translate it. Uh, and it's great. It's really amazing. It's Shadows and Whispers Strange and Spooky Experiences in Archaeology. And uh you know, oh here we go. Here's Can you it. just pronounce it in the proper Sonras y Soroso? I don't know. <laughs> and, so I do apologize as well because my Spanish is even worse than my
1: Thai. So. Vivencias Extrañas tenembrosas and la ar- so it's got something to do with archaeology.
0: Archeolo- I oh, just yeah, the whispers are what is it? Strange and spooky experiences in archaeology. Okay. So it's actually quite humble. So this is actually a, a collection of experiences, around 30 experiences. It was put together by Luis Alberto Lopez Wario and Luis Alberto Martos Lopez. And they've essentially done uh, this collection of these 30 or so reports of people that are in the archaeological field and are leading archaeologists, people that are in academic institutions. Uh, much of it focuses on Mexico, but it does go to other locations Okay, who have been at dig sites and other You know, archaeological locations of significance and importance, and have had very unsettling, um, sometimes spiritual, sometimes exciting encounters with non human entities and supernatural forces. So, we're going to go into that uh, for this this episode.
1: cursed tombs yeah yeah it's like treasure guardians mummies
0: and, yeah and capturing uh, like accidentally picking up a spirit and bringing it home with you kind of stuff um like weird healing sessions where balls of light come out and scan you uh you're going underneath the pyramid of the sun and Teotihuacan and there's this strange tunnel underneath there that has all of this strange activity associated with it and uh people seeing strange entities and
1: so Indiana like style things Mexican Indiana Jones basically it
0: really is it really is is. But uh, before we get into that, what have you got coming up? Uh,
1: I saw that the long-awaited follow-up to 2019's American Cosmic has been released. Oh. Diana Walsh Pasulka's new book, Encounters Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences, uh, picked up a copy and was just perusing through today. I was, I was pretty late to pick up a copy. It came out last week. But uh, so far, some pretty amazing stuff in there with an Australian twist as well. And she, In what sense? Like reporting on people's experiences from Australia? Well, if you remember from the previous book, she had a few pseudonyms from the people she was working yes, with. Yes, yeah. And one of them was... Understandably as well. One of them was Tyler. And Tyler was a, a, a NASA, former NASA engineer, who was also now like an entrepreneur, a scientist. Oh, this and, is the guy that got rich, right? Well, this was the guy that would lie down and, and get downloads from non-human intelligences. at least that's what he claimed that he was receiving his inspiration, his sometimes his business decisions from these altered states of consciousness. and she wrote in in the book about how he almost lived like a monk, like a very uh, strict disciplined uh, ascetic lifestyle, you know didn't watch TV, wasn't influenced by outside information but really followed this rigorous um, practice. Of going into this meditative altered state and making this connection with something, so his identity it was eventually uh, exposed. He's uh, the NASA engineer Timothy Taylor, uh, who we've mentioned on previous shows as well. And there was also James, was another one of these pseudonyms, who was a molecular biologist who studied exotic metamaterials that possibly came from uh, like non-sources, yeah, non-human yeah. craft, and eventually that was uh, revealed to be Gary Nolan. And so she she's all she's often drawn this question about her work of how does she keep making contact with these people? That's that, a good question. Seem, they seek her out. Well, that seem to be in these really high ranking inside circles, right? That have access to information that the rest of us couldn't could not even dream of. And it, it, in fact, that that individual, that NASA engineer Tyler, remember in American Cosmic, he spoke of a hierarchy. And at the top of the hierarchy, this was like a cosmological view, but also his view of human society and our civilization. He saw God at the top, followed by the next rung down, uh, angels and non-human entities. The next rung down from that was uh, intelligence agents, like people involved in the intelligence communities. And the people below that was us regular plebs right? And then below that you had animals. And this was his hierarchy of beings. And I remember the last time we spoke about that, it was always intriguing. Like, why would you place the people involved in intelligence communities above regular people? Because they have access to that knowledge. Right. And so once again, she started to discover these people that are part of that rung that's above us everyday plebs.
0: why are they talking to her about it? Wouldn't they be under confidentiality agreements or you
1: know, there'd be some type of you know law or act preventing them from revealing this information? Well, one of them she was friends with for years. Right, okay. And this is yeah. one of the stories I'll tell you coming up in the Plus extension. She was friends with this woman for years. This was before she wrote about UFOs. Their kids used to go on playdates together. And on one of these playdates, I think she said they were out picking strawberries or something. And Diana said she was taking photos of the kids. And this friend of hers said um gee i wish i had photos of myself when i was a kid and diana looked at her and said well, why don't you have photos of yourself when you're a kid and she said oh my parents never took photos they couldn't and so of course she asks what why do you mean they? why yeah. could, did they not know how to operate a camera why couldn't they take photos and eventually no she reveals that they weren't allowed to take photos of the kids because they were part of an intelligence agency, and, and ultimately she reveals, "Well, my father was a member of the secret space program." Now, this isn't just some random nobody. This is a uh, published scientist, and when Diana, who's who used to work in the same um, department at, at the university, Pasulka was at, uh, who wrote all this, she's a scholar on uh, Western philosophy, a very specific type of Western philosophy about symbols and, and language. Sorry to interrupt, though, but when you say secret space program.
0: What do you mean by secret space program? This is like, this is not, because for whatever reason, it just kind of, it just took me a second. I'm like, hang on. I'm thinking like high level NASA stuff, but that's. Yeah. Great question.
1: When you hear the term secret space program, what do you think? Of? Serpo, which we know isn't true, but I think of that kind of you stuff. You think of Serpo? Yeah. I think of uh, Bill Tompkins and sexy Pleiadians, space do. Lamborghinis. Of course I do. think of David Wilcock and retarded blue avians and all just not... I just think of nonsense. <laughs> That's I mostly just think of yeah. pure nonsense. Like the idea of, of people uh, traveling back in time and then meeting Barry Soret- uh, Soweto, which is actually... Uh, Barack Obama, who was yeah. also part of the secret space program, I think of crazy stuff like that. But Pasulka says it's what she revealed is completely different to what you will hear about in UFO law. It's completely different to what you read about uh, in conspiracies and things that are bandied about on the, on the internet. So probably more consistent with like what they're doing with X, what is it, X45 or
0: 48B or whatever it is, that strange little shuttle that we don't know exactly what it's doing. Right. Well, this woman that revealed this to B. her
1: and Pasulke interviewed her in 2022 and the full interview is in the book and I'll mention some of the highlights when we get into the PLUS extension. Great. But this woman at the time was being recruited by the NSA. So it's not this is a highly intelligent scholar. This is not someone with specialized knowledge. It's not some kooky person on the sure. internet. Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we'll get into that. And, and also the idea that the the whole, uh, the, the secrets of the UFO phenomenon, this is another interesting thing that she delves into. The secrets of the UFO phenomenon will never be something that you can read about. The answers will never be something you can gain from reading a document. And the reason for this is because it's, to, to gain the answers to the UFO mystery, you need to, you need to be initiated into an oral tradition. And it's the oral tradition that we'll mention in the PLUS extension coming up. How odd. It's, it's really interesting. How and of, odd. Of, of course we had high expectations for her work because she's a really you know, great thinker with this stuff. yeah. Uh, and there's some really interesting ideas about how UFO information is actually shared between those that, that have real knowledge. And well, I guess you're not going to write it
0: down because if you write it down, it can be hacked, it can be breached, it can be you know spread about.
1: Well, there's a term that's quite well known apparently. It's called pencils up.
0: Oh, I've never heard of that.
1: And pencils up means whenever you're discussing, like whenever you're having a discussion, it, it means none of this is to be written down. And the majority of the information is pencils up. It's, it's just oral. It's all orally transmitted. Interesting. So you're never going to get this secret document. You're never going to get a stack of papers that reveal the answers. You have to be initiated into people that carry the oral tradition. Isn't it fascinating, though, in a way? Because it becomes much like uh, some of the ideas that have been
0: put out there about oral traditions, that much like in a... Uh, I guess, a, a tulpic fashion, although it's not a tulpa, but the, the oral tradition itself becomes its own entity living amongst oh, the, yeah. the culture of the people. That's so intriguing. it's like the culture of the, you know, of the, well, the culture of the secrecy, and the people in the know kind of feed the energy of that story mm. which moves through them.
1: Well, it's interesting on that note, Basolka actually links it back to Socrates and Plato. Really? Because Socrates was very much against the technology of writing. and Interesting. Didn't, yeah, didn't want to see it uh, become a part of, Civilization and Plato wrote about this as well, essentially outlining how, when you learn through rit- the written word, it's it's different to know. It's, it's different to gnosis, right? And they, they were talking about gnosis in that you understand something differently when it's a, a kind of in-person. Absolutely, uh, you do gaining yep. of knowledge. Well, there's always that saying of
0: uh, you know read or get someone to read. You know that's the bottom level. Show someone. That's the the next level. But if you really want them to learn something, you get them to do it. Mm you know, you get them to experience it and that's how they really do take that on. So maybe this is in the vein of, you know, that kind of concept. Yeah. And apply that to UFO secrecy. It's pretty weird. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into that a little bit later in the show and perhaps it will kind of fit nicely with what we're going to be talking about with uh, Shadows and Whispers, strange and spooky experiences in archeology. span Now this is my first translated book. So uh, be <laughs> kind because uh, it has been a couple of days of like, what well, I don't even know what that means. I don't know how to translate that. Uh, I managed. You mean to get you copied
1: it. and pasted it into Chat GPT. But it's
0: Terrible! <laughs> it's like the whole, like the whole context of what is trying to be conveyed is kind of like the subtlety, the nuance yeah. of what the
1: writer is trying to say is just lost. So you're just going through gobbledygook to try and pick out stories.
0: Yeah, I'm like, where's the story? Where's the story? <laughs> oh, <laughs> light being ball of light. Okay. Oh, goblin. Okay,
1: great. Yeah. <laughs> grab that. I just like, pull it through. Just command F, goblin.
0: Oh, I, I was. I was just like, okay. No, I ended up. Really Reading the entire thing, even though it was translated. Uh, if you speak Spanish, uh this is fantastic for you. Yeah. Like it really, like you will pick up the the full uh, you know concept of what's coming through. I think I will try to explain it though. I think it's there, we're almost there. Did you um, put the aircon on 25, by it's the way? Because so I'm in already here. sweet.
1: So no, no, you keep going. All right, all right. Start all right. telling your story and I'll I love it. it down. Just
0: every episode we've built this studio, we can't get the air conditioning right. Okay, so let's just jump straight into it. And it starts off uh, with this great introduction from uh, the two authors, where they're describing that in the 19th century you had the realism movement that went through, uh, and it emerged from Europe, uh, and it kind of moved through around the world, and it rejected individualism, sentimentality, and uh, exotic elements. And because of this, it's like it, it's like what we talk about with material. Oh, you back? It's like what we talk about with materialism. You kind of um, step away from the experiences, much like what I was just talking about, like you step away from the experiences, especially in academia. It always comes about what can you see, what can you hear, what can you feel. It's all about your five senses. It's not what's beyond those senses. So you find, especially today, but some of these stories go back decades, you find that for, uh, a lot of academics, they do become really hardline materialists because mm-hmm. it's like, it's got to be data. It's got to be backed up. It's got to be peer reviewed, all that kind of stuff. You can't have someone come along and go, well, I was at this dig site and I felt some entity climb inside me while I was digging and take over my body and help me find something incredible. It's like saying something like that is absolutely absurd. And yet though, it's like, An industrial chemist is probably unlikely to have a spiritual experience, right? Unless, of course, you know, they're exposed to some type of chemical explosion, I don't know, and they have a near-death experience. But for archaeologists, and I think we all inherently feel this in some way, right? You don't have to be an archaeologist to feel this. When you go into a site, like a sacred site or a site that has long been abandoned, I think somehow for for many of us, you can intuitively feel that there's an energy, there's a, and without even going woo, there's just something about that location. There's a reverence in some locations when there's a silence and you can feel something. So people in the archaeological world, even though they're very much still caught in the materialism, and this is what archaeology became. Archaeology is, well, let's infer what we can from what we find. But a lot of archaeologists have been quiet about this, but they've had mystical and magical experiences when they've gone to these locations. They've gone to these sites, so they describe, and I don't know if this is the exact term again because of the translation, uh, but the authors describe this element of magical realism that has emerged in archaeology, particularly in these these cases from you know Mexico and and the uh, the Southern Americas, and you know it's like where humans. fully integrated into their environments, their their worldviews and their beliefs. But this magical realism, it can allow people to step out of that and it's intertwined, especially in archaeologists, into their daily lives. So they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place of trying to find, well, I've gone to this site and something really strange has happened. But there's no way I can document that. Right. You know, or I can document it, but I have to do it in a way that's like, oh, well, I've picked up this bone and you know, this bone perhaps has come from this, whereas, you know, we find out later on that they've somehow either downloaded that information or they've had that's not described in this book, but this is the sorts of experiences that we're going with. I mean that's what
1: Pasulka talks about quite a lot in American Cosmic and this book, is is scientists that Gain information through paranormal ways, yeah. but never reveal it. Never reveal it. There's one example that woman I was telling you about who claimed her father was part of this uh, secret group said that throughout her her high school and, and school uh, college schooling, she always found it difficult to explain how she got answers, especially in mathematics. She would always know the answer, but... Never show it working. How, how to show the working was very difficult. Frustrating for her because the answer was just something that went popped into her head. Yep.
0: Well, think about it. Like with archaeologists, right? You're down in the earth. Like you're down on your hands and knees. You're not sitting in a lab somewhere, or sometimes you are, but you're not up writing papers like other academics. You know, you're actually there on the ground. And so, what's happening? You're touching stuff. And even though yes, that's a sense. Beyond that is the idea of psychometry. Like you're picking up the energies that are around you. Uh, And you know, one particular. Kind of theme that popped up before I get into some of these stories was that it's fascinating. It's like a new take on the stone tape theory. Of course, you know what the idea of stone tape theory is—that a certain location will absorb, you know, the energies that are around it. So you and I having this conversation right now, Ben, perhaps it will be absorbed into this wall over here and will replay sometime in the future in some weird, you know, ghost-like event. Uh, but normally, it's associated with more uh, intense emotional kind of events. But in a couple of these stories. It's uh, particularly, it applies to archaeology, right? Because archaeologists are not only going into extremely old sites, they're also going into sites that are a couple of hundred years old, or they're going into more modern buildings that have been you know, renovated previously. And so they start peeling back the stucco and the layers of paint and that kind of stuff. And there's some paranormal researchers that have approached these archaeologists and they're like, are you experiencing paranormal phenomena? And the archaeologists are like, yeah, if you could call it paranormal phenomena, we've had some weird experiences. It's like once you start pulling back the layers, like the modern layers mm-hmm. from the older ones of the older original material, it's like it releases the Oh, entities, really? And they all come flying out. And being an archaeologist, what are you doing? You're peeling back layer and layer and layer of dirt and substance. And it is actually acts, even though it's spiritual, it acts as a physical barrier. Okay. And so there's well, many... let's hear the anecdotes let's hear sure. the example. Because there's stories in here of people like you know entities and of course they talk about the elushas, which are like those little I guess you could call them goblin-like creatures they're uh, mischievous kind of creatures because they go into these particular locations they seem to appear uh, sometimes they're trapped between worlds and so when you go to an archaeological site and you dig them up they get released and start causing trouble, but let's jump into some of the uh, the earlier cases. And Ben, I want you to bring up for me image one and uh, image two in a moment here. Uh, this was quite an intriguing little story. So this relates to, and I can't believe it. It's the first story as well, and I haven't <laughs> I've accidentally deleted his name. Oh, good. Here we story. go. Jose? No, it's not Jose. It's our uh, Francisco Galvan. Right? He's a archaeologist from the National School of Anthropology and History. Uh, and I, I like his opening kind of story because, uh, he says, I dreamt it. He has this dream. And in the dream, and this is what happens to a number of archaeologists in this in this book as well, their experiences. It's not just what you're experiencing at a dig site. It's what's coming to you in dreams both before and after a certain dig that you go to. And he says, I find myself in this monumentally rocky location on the bank of a river, and I'm excited, but I can see these large figures, these large engraved figures that are all around me. And this is an incredible discovery that I'm so excited about. And He just wakes up. He just wakes up. And he has this feeling. He's like, oh, there's... That that's, was more than a dream. You know, there's something here. So he says this seemingly is a projection of where he's going to go into the the Chihuahua desert, where he's going to go to this particular site. And he's heading to the Boquilla de Conchos. So again, sorry if I destroyed that. <laughs> so, so I am reckon Ch- what he's saying is Chihuahua desert? Chihuahua, yeah. And Boquilla. Oh, it Baquila? Thank you very much. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Ben. Uh, so he goes in, and what did I call it before? Bequila. Oh, okay. Anyway, so he travels down into this particular location. And just bring up image number one for me, Ben. So uh, he wants to head... (laughs) I knew you were going to do that. I heard that being yelled from the office next door. So uh, when he goes to this particular site, right, he finds that there are, you know, these beautiful... And this is a well-known location. It's not like it's anything that is um, not discovered, right? It's not like he's making this new discovery. But I get the impression here is that the discovery that he has is about... The phenomena itself, as opposed to a, a new site, because when he heads into this location, it's near the river. And as he's uh, down near this river, he says that um, he gets this like feeling of where there's this uh, like a, a mirror. He calls it like a stone mirror, and he feels like he's kind of being kind of caught up in it. And he finds himself, you know, just being. He doesn't say it directly, but it's like he has this kind of metaphysical experience. And he says when he wakes up in the morning, he wakes up as if he's reborn right? He's just completely well. reborn. And there was some discomfort that he had in his ear. And he says, the light beings or the beings of light have healed me because the pain that was in his ear is just completely disappeared. And it's almost like just being in the locale of this particular site and the entities that may be attached to it can do these things for certain people. So he's like, oh, this is incredible. And he's feeling reborn. And uh, he wants to go and photograph the, the form. So he goes to, to photo them, photograph them, um but as he does he's like ah oh, you know i'm just going to leave my stuff here and i'm just going to go for a wander so as he goes for a wander he says he hears this laughter and he initially thought it was young people down on the river and he's like that's actually not people it's coming from somewhere else and these beings he says this voice this voice tells him it's coming from nowhere they will steal your things from the camp What's that? And he's <laughs> like, what? So he panics and he goes rushing back in fear to protect his his belongings. Um and he reaches the vicinity of the camp and there's there's no one there, right? But it turns out that there were kids down at the river. And somehow these beings had seemingly protected him from having his belongings stolen. Why would there be beings looking out for his archaeological gear? What's in it for them? It's it's really strange, right? Because when he says he feels like he's pulled into this mirror, he does have what, and this is again the translation. He's like he's like an explosion of stars, and he's like something is happening. Like he must be connecting with something at these sites, and this kind of sets the theme for the book that there's like uh, archaeologists that go to these particular locations sometimes seemingly have a connection with it. Like, but you've got to ask for it as well. And if you go there with an arrogance about yourself, it can have, you know, in some circumstances, very uh, disastrous consequences. Um, but after he's had this experience and he's he's woken up and he's he's feeling really great and he's heard these voices. He's just like, there's no explanation for this. Um, but he's kind of, you can tell he's going over it. But he's in his head. He's like, no, no, I didn't hear voices. I didn't hear voices. You know, he's like, he's like, no, I can't deceive myself. I heard a voice. Like, I know, I know that something was, was sheltering me something from the beyond, but what it is, I don't know. It, it's, it sits within the, you know, the esoteric. So he heads to the cave of monkeys, which was the, um, the image there that we, that we put up. This is about 60 kilometers away. Uh, and when he goes in there, um, he claims that he meets uh, a man by the name of Don uh, Socorro, and this guy has an interesting, you know, understanding of this particular location. And uh, while he's there, he lays down, and this guy is like, a, a, he's he's an Indiana Jones type character because there's another guy there as well, and the dog that's with them just starts drowning, and what? this this Don is just like he's <laughs> okay. just like your dog's drowning. And the guy's like, oh my God. So the guy goes running over and he starts drowning as well. And so like with this, like he just pulls out a rope. Can no one in Mexico swim? He just pulls out a rope and it's just like throws the rope out and pulls them both out and it's done. Like it's just, and he's just nothing. Like he's not concerned about it at all. Like just really kind of blunt. But, He's there, right? And I'm like, why is this relevant? Like, why does this have any relevance? Because yes, it really, why is this relevant? It really has to set up just how nonchalant this guy is, right? Okay. Because later on, uh, the, the witness in this particular case, he's like, I fall asleep. And that night, doors open and close and doors open and close. And he finds himself like wandering down this corridor of some kind. It's this long, bright corridor with a misty floor. And I've got to read this directly because he says, as he gets into this space... The space becomes a void, and I find that my body is floating. I see intense colored lights, and they draw me in with force. I wanted to touch them. And when I did, a beautiful woman with a white dress made of cotton and black hair appeared. I don't think it's made of black hair. I think she has black hair. So immediately... he says, I approached her and began to kiss her on the face.
1: What? <laughs> what? I was Bald. unhurried. Bold. I like was this. That, uh, this is like a Latin uh, confidence. Oh, When you better. see a hot ghost woman, you don't hesitate. No,
0: you don't hesitate. Like, he's just straight in. He's like, <laughs> then I kissed her on the mouth and our tongues intertwined and danced together. And then I started to see her lower dress falling down. Lovely brown and firm breasts made an appearance. And I started <laughs> squeezing them at <laughs> yeah, and, and savouring them and gently kissing them. So, okay, like he's getting a bit fresh with this weird uh, dream woman. So he's doing it right and he's, it's getting a little bit amorous, beyond amorous. When he says, she yielded and wrapped her arms around my neck. Her hands roamed my back and I was experiencing sensual joy until she settled on the back of my neck. And at that moment, her hands squeezed tighter and tighter and pulled her entire lifeless body into mine. What the hell? Breathing became difficult. All erotic senses disappeared. And at that moment, I was completely unable to get any air into my lungs. I could not. I was suffocating. I could not get her off me. Is he being possessed or is this classic old hag... No, it's, it's not described, right? It feels like it's something that's at this particular location, right? It's an entity that's at this location. And many of these entities seem to be able to invade the dreamscapes of anyone there, like within a certain distance or whatever intention. Um, so as this is all going on, the desperation in my face of this suffocating experience is reaching this unbearable limit. And I'm telling myself, I don't want to die this way. I don't want to suffocate on a pair of breasts. And then he says, right... Her sparse, I can think of
1: worse ways to go.
0: Her sparse... Not this way. Her sparse beard scratched my face <laughs> and her boozy breath <laughs> what? made me de- dizzy and provoked a repulsion no, 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 that translated no. into nausea.
1: Her sparse
0: beard? Yeah. Her sparse beard, right?
1: So what is going
0: on? It's not a 60-year-old Italian woman. It's like some... Something else. Are you sure
1: the story's not talking about his beard?
0: No, no, no. Her beard and boozy breath... Is making him sick to the point of vomiting. I still couldn't inhale or exhale, nor could I open my eyes. And he starts screaming like he thinks this is it. I'm is done. Is this a Mexican ghost tranny? So some yes. So some <laughs> hand, seemingly in this space, kind of reaches in and grabs him and pulls him and he's awake. Like he's he's suddenly awake. And it's this, you know, this Don next to him, and he's like, Oh, what's wrong? What's wrong, archaeologist? Are you okay? And he's like, oh, oh, Yeah, oh, yeah, oh. And you know, after you've had a bad dream and you kind of calm down, you think, oh, how silly that is, you yeah, know, that's yeah. fine. So he goes back to sleep and nothing else happens. But in the morning, uh, Don Socorro was preparing coffee and he's like, good morning. And he's so like this <laughs> kind of like look about him and he's like, oh, you had an episode of El Merto last night. And it uh, was like, oh, yeah, I must have. But he's like, it wasn't a myrto. It was a myrta. Like it was a woman, right? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a man. It was a woman. And he kind of just looks at him and kind of like cocks his eye a little bit. And he's like, uh-uh, it was a myrto. And he's like, like I said, out of H-Benchura. <laughs> <out of, laughs> um, yeah. yeah, he's like dry-reaching. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so he, hang
0: on, this is the opening story of this book? This is one of the earliest stories in the book. <laughs> and that's why I'm like, i have this. i have going to keep on go. going. I've got to go. <laughs> uh, and it was. It said it was a man dressed as a woman and you fell for it, right? And he's like, "What? Uh, the hang on a second. This
1: is a like a dream invading ghost. Cross-dressing dream invading ghost. It, don't ghosts have the ability to just shapeshift? What, what, <laughs> there's so much I don't understand about this. He's like, like
0: kissing his tits.
1: <laughs> what? What is going on? Why would you shapeshift to the point where you look like a woman, but then reveal? that? Okay, so the what the what the <laughs> moral so what the moral of this story
0: apparently is is that when he um ha- like he keeps on talking to him, and he's like you fell for it, and he says I decided not to reply. Like I'm not going to reply to him, but I was left with this unpleasant sensation, and it stayed with me. For days, and in fact, writing about this has had me, you know, made me have to relive it again. It was such an unpleasant experience. What's the El Muerto image you've got here? So this is essentially what the there's like folkloric stories about this guy, and apparently he, um, you know, is an evil kind of figure like the Hat Man that mm. shows up and attacks people. But even though this particular story is is quite horrible uh, for him. He also uh, says that look, I actually realized I learned something from this. I learned to protect myself before entering any spaces that do not belong to me and to ask permission from the living and dead uh, entities. Intuition tells you whether you should enter or not and this should be done without questioning it, especially from an egocentric perspective because that's kind of where he was right and this is a really and this is why I think this is so early in the book. Uh, and I like this, there's this humbling. About you know being an archaeologist and so many archaeologists being like no 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 like we already have the history we already know what's already happened and just walking into these sites Uh, but no it's like you've got to be careful about this arrogance Mm. so then later on bring up image number three Ben Uh, so this is uh, I think this is uh, is it is it Chipe Totec Chipe Totec so X I P E so I think that's a chi so Chipe Totec so this this particular entity uh, he claims that. what he had gone, because he was a photographer, like he focused on archaeological photography. He had gone to uh, this particular location, and uh, I think it was in the Sierra Norte de Puebla. And he said he was quite impulsive and had excessive pride and arrogance about, you know, certain locations. That was the archaeologist in me. And it was this morning, and he goes out to this particular site, and it's filled with all these figures, much like his dream, in a way. He doesn't say directly that it's like the dream, but he finds this site with these, these figures. It's early January. And all of this sediment that was over uh, this particular like ruin, mm. he says it's all being kind of pulled away and, and moved away. And he says it was a mask. Like this mask appears with closed eyes, as if they seem like the the eyelids were sewn shut. And immediately I identified it as Chippitotec. And uh, he says he starts photographing it. He's like just taking photographs of it. And this is really strange. And I don't know if it's the because of the translation, but he says the entity when he took that image right that we like it's a flash. And all of a sudden, it's like everything sucked up and the image penetrated into his brain, like struck him into his brain. And he said, once it was inside, it was in my dreams. The entity had completely trapped me. It had overcome me. It wouldn't let me sleep. It governed him every day. It ruled him and it reduced him to a wreck. Now he says he received death threats. And now I don't know if that was from the entity that was inside him in his head or other people. Uh, It apparently invented an affair with an indigenous woman. Um, He said there was an intense sexual force that was controlling me and I couldn't stop it. More death threats. He would get images like flashes of candles upon his coffin and these things, you know, threatening to attack him. More entities. You know, he was engulfed in a whirlwind of fear. uh, fear. And he's like, what's going to become of me? Like, I'm just... Mm. And the guy became a mess. Like, this doesn't, you know really portray it uh, just how terrible it, it seemingly was because he just says at the end, I just wanted to be caught and devoured. Nothing else mattered anymore. I was locked in a labyrinth of darkness and I couldn't get out. Now he says that finally, when he started talking to other people about it, they came forward and did prayers for him and were able to, when they learned of his misfortune and were able to get him out of this. And he said, I finally saw the light, the calm being of my spirit return to me. And when that happened the bad taste that was in my mouth also began to fade. So it was causing like a physical effect as all, but it sounds like what had happened was he photographed this site without asking for permission and it allowed the entity that was protecting the site to get inside him, right. right? So later on he speaks to um, you know other people that are, are knowledgeable about this particular entity and this particular site. And uh, one of his friends says to him, look, you went through something extremely spiritually intense, like extremely so, um, and gives him a book so he can try and kind of remedy what had happened to him. But he says it was quite clear what had occurred. And this uh, entity actually was instructing him, giving him teachings, much like what had happened with the other entity. But that was to understand that these spaces don't belong to us, they belong to them. And it's necessary once again to request permission from the, the location to be able to get access to that particular location, and it's funny because in you know many of these reports, the way that you can request permission is quite intriguing. Sometimes it's like you can just walk into a site and just say, "Hey, you know, please forgive us for any mistakes we make," and you, know, you try to not, and you shouldn't anyway. Like you shouldn't desecrate or you know mess up a site, um, or you can do things like give food and alcohol and right. you know do these weird kind of things. Um, but then you've got the uh, actually we'll skip forward from the shaman. I'll come back to the shaman. Bring up image number four for me, please, Ben. This is the ghost of the Church of the Capuchins. And uh, this happened in 1995. So this is a low-res image. I'm sorry, I couldn't get a high-res image of this particular unacceptable. location. Um, but this is a uh, a project that was conducted for about a period of 10 years of restoration. Um, and there was something very strange that occurred here. So this was Josephina. uh Guerrero, who was the archaeologist again at the National Institute of Anthropology and History, Uh, and from 1995 she was working in this site and doing restoration work um, and putting up scaffolding, not directly herself, but you know doing all this kind of stuff, right? But when she was at this particular old church, she claims that um, it had been a tough year for her, so she was already she was in a psychic kind of state or just not disturbed, but. There's pressure there. And so she didn't hesitate to accept this invitation to go and meet up with this man by the name of Eduardo, um, who was the director of this restoration project. So she goes down there and she goes into this particular site and it's spectacular. Like it's a really uh, great opportunity to go into this this temple, the Capuchinus Temple. And um, this was built between 1680 and 1738 and it still preserves most of its architecture that's intact but it has been, you know, affected by fire, much like many of these locations. Mm-hmm. They're affected by fire over the years. The facade has kind of broken down a little bit. Um, the bell tower, you know, it's, it, as you can see from the image, it's it's run down quite a lot, but I'll link to it. If you're not watching the video, I'll link to it so you can see it in the show notes. Um, but when she goes into this site, um, you know, she describes how, you know, she'd get up and do her work in the morning and everything was good until one day uh, Eduardo came to her and uh, there's like this altarpiece, and he says, "Oh, can you can you draw this for me? Can you draw it to scale? Because that's what she would do for her, you know, uh, archaeology work. She'd do drawings and sketches." And she's like, "Oh, you know, this is going to be really hard, but yeah, I can I can do this for you. I would love to do that." And so she accepts and uh, she starts drawing this altarpiece. Now, around the same time, there's other workers that are there. So you don't just have the you know the academic team. You've also got laborers and workers and people working really hard to you know perform all these duties there. And she said that they were acting a little bit odd. She said people would go outside to smoke and they would kind of form these little clicks and little circles. And she's like, they were kind of, they were keeping silent and tolerating me, but she kind of wondered if she was annoying them. She's like, am I annoying them? Like, why aren't, they, why aren't they talking to me? Why aren't they you know, having any interactions with me? Until finally she confronted one of them and they said, look, look, it's not you, but if we tell you, you won't understand. She's like, oh, come on, you know, you can tell me. And he's like, no, 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 no. So she says, you know, the days passed, and They seriously didn't tell her. They I didn't to tell her. That to someone. I know. Well, it was just like, no, Sorry, you no, won't understand. Sorry, you won't understand. Um, but as she's there, she said that, uh, you know, strange things started happening inside. She said there was this young man uh, with fair skin and light eyes. He suddenly goes through this emotional change. Like he just takes this, these few steps back and he starts extending his right arm and he's pointing at the wall with his index fingers. (gasps) Did you see it? Did you see it? Now she says, neither the architect nor myself knew anything that he was talking about, but he was talking in this agitated tone. His name was Joel. She eventually finds out. And he's like this person, this person passed right in front of, I just saw him walk in front of us and he walked into the wall. Like he walked through the wall. And she's like, come on, you know, this is ridiculous. Mm. You know, this, is, this isn't happening. And other people that started acting weird as soon as this event took place, right? And this guy's new. So it seems like everyone else, and this is what is already inferred, right? That they know that there's some type of haunting or weird activity that's taking place, but she isn't, isn't seeing it. And this new guy comes along and he kind of, you know, introduces her to it, sure. you know, roundabout way. So um, eventually she manages to, to pin down Eduardo and, and other people. And she's like, you have to tell me what's going on. I don't know what that was, but you need to tell me. I'm like, okay, fine. Look, when we first arrived here, there was all of these inexplicable and fascinating experiences that were taking place. You know, there were individuals that we would interrupt and they would pass through us or they were walking through. But each and every one of us experienced this strange kind of effect where at night while we were asleep, we would feel someone touch us or something touches and a heat would invade our bodies and travel through it. And it'd be like a warmth passing up through our bodies, over our face, into our shoulders, then back down to our feet. And as soon as we felt this warmth, when we would wake up, we'd throw our blankets off to see if there was someone there and there'd never be anyone there. But immediately afterwards, there'd be some type of apparition or an entity that would kind of appear. And she's like, oh, this is this is incredible. Like, you know, it must be haunted. Like, There must be something going on here. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And they kind of leave it, right? They just kind of leave it. And yet this, this activity continues over and over and over again until you have um, Alfredo. So Alfredo, who really wasn't a believer in any of this kind of stuff, uh, he was sleeping in one of the offices kind of because it's got these offices that are attached to it. And he wakes up in the middle of the night to find, you know, one of these entities directly in the room with him. Like it's, it's obvious that this place is completely and absolutely haunted, like it's infested. But this ties in with what I was saying a little bit earlier in the show, that's like once they've started to remove the layers of this location, it's allowed all the entities to start right. spewing forth. So it's not like one of the really old sites. It's a relatively new, it's only a couple of hundred years old, but it's because of their restoration work, it's agitating all the spirits and they're all coming loose. So um, this kind of stuff just goes on for, for days and days and days and days uh, to the point where essentially they have to leave. Like they have to get out of there. We have to, to get away from there. Um, and what happens is there's this guy, uh, who utilizes a deep meditation, right? And in utilizing the deep meditation, he seemingly connects with something, right? He connects with the entities that are at this site. And essentially he's a, like a Spanish ghost whisperer because once he does it, um, everything disappears, like everything dissipates. And everything can return to normal. like And this is really great for a while. And, and all the workers come back and everyone's calm. And like it's all good. Except <laughs> uh, he's uh, one of the, the lead projects, project leaders. He's really upset because he's like uh, the guy that came and cleared everything away and got rid of the ghost. There's nothing fun here anymore. There's nothing exciting here anymore because okay. it got cleared out. It's like he took the ghost with him. And he did. It's like he took the ghost with him. So it's kind of like he acted as this, this ghost whisperer uh, for this particular site. But that's like a, a more modern kind of report that sits in this book. And there are heaps of those kinds of reports. So you've got like the, the Palace of Cortez. And in fact, um, I think you've got it. I don't know which number it is there, Ben, but the Palace of Cortez is this old mansion, essentially. Yeah. So if you look at this site, uh, this is a really spectacular location
1: as well. Looks like a fort. It doesn't look. Yeah, it's uh, like a fort, like a it's, mansion at all. It yeah, looks it's, like a military fort.
0: It's been used, you know, for a whole heap of reasons. But this is the psychic lightning guy, right? Because uh, there's one particular man who's he's connected to this entire site. So this particular uh, anecdote was described by. Uh, let me just bring it up here, so because it's a very long Let's story. Go.
1: Let's go with the name.
0: No, Jesus Torres uh, Peralta, not bad. So he is also a professor researcher at the National Institute of Anthropology and History. So many of them coming from this particular location. Um, but he describes that when he was at this particular site, and you know, with with this book, you know, there's a lot of people that are that are brought in. Um, Actually, no, I messed that one up. I got the wrong person. No, I got the wrong person. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. Dude, no one cares about the name. Oh, okay. Well, look, it's, it's all in <laughs> the tell book. tell us the story. Like, it's all in the book. Uh, but this is the actual paranormal investigation site, right? So this is where um, one of the people that's been involved in it, right? He's in, somehow involved with the archaeological team. And uh, he previously has been struck by lightning, right? And when he's struck by lightning, he's fine. Like, he's okay. But it brings about this term, which is called the graniceros, What's that? So the Granoceros, uh, people that are struck by lightning and survive, are considered uh, to have the ability to possess perceptions and heightened sensitivity that normal people
1: cannot see or feel. Didn't you just do a segment on this a few weeks ago?
0: Yeah, along those lines, right? But this is an actual term that's believed. So when they bring this guy in for this you know, particular location, for this Palace of Cortez, he comes in and uh, he's just like, oh... Um, there's something really weird about that wall there because they're looking at this large wall and there's what appears to be like a fireplace. This very large fireplace that's there, and as they're wandering around, they can they know that this place was modified. They said the building has been modified. Uh, this particular room that they were in, it had been split into a dining room and a kitchen, and this fireplace was moved. And you know, there's something going on between you know 1629 and all this kind of stuff. Like not really that important, um, but it has this big. You know, um, standing in history, right? It's been used for a whole range of different things, uh, and up until recently, I believe, like the 1800s, it was used for small businesses and warehousing and storage and that okay. kind of stuff. And uh, but there's always been this history, like this weird history of things that were that were going on. Um, but you've got this man by the name of Theo. And Theo is you know, prepare, like repairing this crack that's in this kind of in the wall and it's right near the fireplace. as he does and he's repairing it and doing what he does, um, this little object falls out and he's like, oh, what what the hell's that?" And he opens up the object and he's like, "Oh, it's like a cross. It's like this like charcoal black cross. And he said, oh, that's kind of strange. But as soon as that is released, it's like it unleashes just this weird phenomenon that's going
1: on. Or was it something placed in the wall to protect
0: the Maybe. Or well, it, I get the impression that it's like a... Um, like a talisman. Yeah, like it's some type of like appeasing a talisman or some type of protective amulet or something yeah. like that. Um, but when that's in there, right? So he goes to the leader of this project. This is uh, Don George. and Don George! You know, Theo's like, uh, he's like trembling and, and petrified. Don and George, John George is what's like up. what's what's wrong? No, he doesn't know what's up. He's no. like, what's wrong with you? What's going on? Sure. And this this Theo is like, I'm sorry, but um, I can't, I can't be here anymore. I I can't. And he's like, why? Like, what? You, just tell me. And he's like, look, I was working on the fireplace. I was on the little stool, reaching into the fireplace flue. I was restoring it when suddenly I felt a very large and strong hand grab me upon the shoulder, pulled me, lifted me up, and slammed me against the floor. My mason's trowel was uh, thrown from my hand uh, and then a shadow emerged from the fireplace and came towards me and went through me. Hmm. He says, when the shadow went through him, it was like the worst feeling that he'd ever had. It was this horrible sense that came through. And he says, I'm not going back. There's just no way I'm going back. So he's like, okay, I get it. You know, like that's very silly, but fine. You know, you don't have to go back. Now the excavation team had heard about what had happened and straight away, they're just like, this has been happening to us. Like we've seen entities. Um, there was two workers from a distant village that had previously fled and uh, they'd been sleeping in there. They'd been sleeping in one of the rooms because they couldn't afford to, to just travel back and forth every single day. And they let they work up in the middle of the night to find this entity kind of manif- in this black cloak manifesting before them. Uh, other workers had said that these black these beings are around in the offices and in the other parts of the building. And like really the feeling that everyone was having is that this was like a horrible kind of vibration was now permeating out through this building, like this very old building after this talisman has been removed, right? So word gets around, I don't know how it works, but word gets around where this um, paranormal investigative team kind of you know hears that there's strange happenings and goings on at this particular site. So it just so happens that they have a permit. I don't know again, I don't know how you have a permit to enter an archaeological site to perform exorcisms or paranormal investigations, but apparently they did. And so the project leader in this case is like, "Well, you got a permit, so you can you can come in." So they do. So they they bring in though these um really sensitive microphones. And they bring in that apparently like they've got all the other kinds what of equipment. For? Well, they've got all the other kinds of equipment, like EMF meters and all that ghost busting stuff. But for them, they focus on the audio recordings. Are oh, they're trying to get EVPs or something. They're trying to get EVPs. So they come into this site and they were like, we know what's going on here. It's like now that you've peeled back these layers, you've unleashed all the entities. Like they've all started coming through. And of course, like what entities? Like I know people are saying stuff, but what are you talking about? Like, you know, we've experienced this before. Church, chapels, you know, these locations, this stuff happens. So they grab hold of one of these highly sensitive microphones and they record uh, into this space in the room. And when they record into the space in the room, they get the uh, contributor here to come and listen. And uh, he picks up the, the headphones and he starts listening. And he's like, what the hell is that? What the hell is that? He says, the sound of friar chants, like Gregorian chants, can be very faintly heard in the background. And this is in the office. Right, this isn't, it's not even connected anywhere else into the room. It's like, it's been a two-year journey. You know, to get, like, what is this? He found out that this particular site had actually been used to house a group of Franciscan friars that had been expelled from another location at some point. And this is like, like in the 16th century, 17th century or something, right? And in this office was also uh, now destroyed, but this, uh, yeah, wooden this altarpiece. Kind of yeah, that, well, <laughs> it wasn't the bell, but this, this chanting. It's like, how can you? how is the building generating this? So he's impressed by the results from the parapsychologists. And he says, look, I encourage them to explore the fireplace room itself because this is where this little amulet was and perhaps, you know, we could work out what was going on. So they do. They point their, um, their microphones toward this particular fireplace. And they say "There's like, he said, I stood in front of it and expressed my keen interest in what they could find about this particular place. And the man with the ability to perceive with his closed eyes, so this is the guy that was struck by lightning, he claims that as he was watching, that an entity, a black, large, cloaked entity, jumped out and emerged from the fireplace. It ran past them, and he could feel pain and sorrow, like anguish. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't. And now, of course, as the paranormal you know, researchers are, are looking at this, like they're really excited. They're rubbing their hands together. Um, so they point their microphones, and he puts on the headphones. And he says, the sound that it made sent shivers down my spine. It makes my skin crawl every time I remember it. He said, in the the background, he said, it was faint, but clear and distinct. It was the sounds of moans, weeping, sobs, and groans. It was absolutely horrible. I don't like you! Yeah, pretty much. That kind of sound? That's horrible. Like, just truly, (laughs) dementedly horrible. And, um, yeah, this just keeps on going. Now it takes him a couple of years and that's what you know, obviously these stories you know because they're only you know, a few pages together very much compressed um, but it's it takes a couple of years he doesn't know anything it's just fascinating to him that he, he heard this but you know, the tapes the tapes were blank like all that kind of stuff has been eliminated from it but he says later years later i had the opportunity to research this particular site and i found a very old document about the palace of cortez and during that i discovered that in colonial times this mansion had actually been the headquarters of the Holy Office of the Inquisition. And that oh, wow. very room, the fireplace room, had been adopted for interrogation and torture. The Black Cross, we later on found out, had been used during the same era for exorcisms. So it's like it was. It was an exorcist's um, cross that was used essentially as a, as a talisman. So, you know, terrifying kind Never, of
1: stuff. Never, ever renovate. That's the moral of this yeah, entire
0: book. yeah, yeah. So then, though, we come to the stories of the underworld, and there's two stories that come from beneath the Pyramid of the Sun. Now, I've got two images here for you, Ben, that I want you to... Actually, three images that I want you to bring up. Um, I'm going to make this kind of a little bit shorter. Uh, that These stories, um, they're totally separate. Right? They're, they're isolated stories, but it's just fascinating that it relates to exactly the same location in Teotihuacan, and we're only recently talking about you know Teotihuacan, which was that incredible city. You know, for the time, one hundred and twenty-five thousand people back. And that last episode we did with five thirty-six or five thirty-five, when you know the world was enveloped with darkness because of potentially a volcano erupting. Yeah. Um, this is one of these uh, locations where you have this pyramid of the sun. Now, in nineteen seventy-one, underneath the pyramid of the sun, they found a tunnel. This strange tunnel. Now, this tunnel is roughly, uh, I believe, uh, seven to eight meters deep below ground. It's under, you know, thousands of tons of volcanic rock, if not more. Uh, And it was also, I think it was like 105 or 106 meters long, something like that. And these archaeologists don't entirely know what it was used for. What they do know is that uh, there was a wall. It's like it walled off something. It was a very heavy wall that had been taken down. But it was pretty clear that the people that built it had want to block this space. And beyond this wall, which is now down, which the tunnel leads into, is a set of galleries. Yeah, so if you look at this image here, if you zoom in, Ben, so that orangey kind of image there, that's the staircase that you can enter through. Uh, and then that's the majority of the pyramid there on the left. Now, Ben, if you go to the next image, this is this is another one previous, sorry.
1: Oh, oh <laughs> it's upside down.
0: That's all I got. Oh, there wasn't another one? Nope. Oh, okay. That's so, it, buddy. Oh, that's a shame. I thought there was. I must have. Oh, there it is. There it is. Go back. Okay. So in this particular image here, right, this is just from another angle, but this is demonstrating the tunnel, right? So this is the tunnel that's far beneath the pyramid. And as you can see, Ben, it heads directly oh. uh, beneath the pyramid, like directly yeah, right. into it. Right under there. Right under with these chambers, Right. Now, with these chambers, uh, it breaks... It's like a
1: porn collection.
0: Probably, yeah. It breaks off into like this four or three or four uh, clover leaves, right? And a central cardinal kind of point right in the center. Um, And you can go into this particular spot. And that's exactly what these two uh, contributors have done. They're both archaeologists. I'm going to mix these stories together a little bit. Uh, First, you've got Jesus um, Peritala, So he's also from the National Institute. Uh, He describes this really fascinating scene where... Um, basically what he would do is his office was based kind of in the distance, not too far from the pyramid. So he can see the pyramid at night. And he says at 10 o'clock, there's all this other stuff that's like um, this vast kind of like archaeological or um, sacred land that's, you know, in front of him, not sacred, but uh, archaeological, right? And so um, he has this uh, cleaner that's in his office building and the cleaner normally will come in because he'll be there working at night and working on whatever he was writing and publishing his journal entries, And the cleaner would just come and have a chat with him, but this one particular evening, the cleaner comes along, and he's like, "Oh, you know, just I'm really just freaked out, you know." And he says, "Well, why? Like, why are you freaked out?" And the cleaner says, "Well, you know, while I last night, you know, I was sitting in this in the hall, and I had my blanket over me, and some invisible force just came along and grabbed hold of me and ripped my blanket from me and threw my stuff across the room and." And of course, you know, being an archaeologist, you know, uh, Jesus is just looking at him and he's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, like that, interesting. And like, where did this ghost come from? What is-? He's like, oh. Totally skeptical, right? Yeah. yeah totally skeptical. He's like, oh, uh, yeah, it in the painting. And he's like, it's like, it's in the painting, right? <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. And he just keeps on yada, 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 yada going, right? And he's like, oh, look at his watch. he like, I have to get going because if it closes like at 10 o'clock, mm. I can't cross through this particular location. And so the guy keeps on going, he's like, I've got to go, I've got to run. So he leaves, right? Just thinking about, oh, there's ghosts around, like that's kind of, that's kind of weird and kind of strange, but you know, nothing to it. Except as he's wandering across this particular location, which is right on top of the pyramid, he says, this woman appears in his peripheral vision. And this woman is stalking him, like not an actual person. It's some type of like ghostly entity. Because she's got long black hair. She's in this white cotton gown. Is it a
1: woman though? Well, (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty skeptical at this point. That's a good
0: question. You can never tell. Well, but I'm not sure, right? I'm not so sure, right? Um, But as this woman is kind of pursuing him, uh, he stops because he's freaked out and she stops. It's like the Bigfoot stories, you know, where these things kind of, you stop and it stops. And so it stops and then he keeps on. And he just finally makes a run for it. Like he makes his run for it. And he's like, oh my God, like I, Like, what was that? It feels like it was a ghostly entity of some kind. But the night goes, uh, but the problem is, is that he goes up into his room and his room is like on the second or third floor. Like there's no way that someone could reach up to it. And he's like, whatever was following him was now at the window and was tapping on the window. (laughs) And he's like tapping on the window. And he actually writes that he was so terrified that he pulled the blanket over his head. And he was, you know, just freaked out, pardon me, by what was going on. And then the night, the day comes, right? The night ends and the day comes. And it's like, that's weird. Like, it's just but not connected to anything. There's like no connection with it whatsoever. Until, of course, uh, he finds out that he has a group of students that come along. And these group of students are, you know, fascinated by the pyramid of the sun. And they ask if they can go into the the tunnels. And these tunnels are not for the general public. Like, this is something for people that have got, you know, uh, important, you know, academic motivations sure. yep. as opposed to mere curiosity. And so they're all excited. He's like, yeah, we can do that. Like, It's a unique and unrepeatable experience, I suppose, unless you walk in there again. Um, and you can go and go into the tunnels. So they do. And he writes in this book about the elements about it. So normally um, with this particular tunnel, there's no air down there. Like it's really hard to get any air. So you only go in groups of five or so. Um, and you can walk in. It's very limited and it's very small. And he says, we descend this seven meter metal staircase, and which provides tunnel access. And we start heading through the tunnel. And he says, what's weird about it is as we're heading through the tunnel, normally the oxygen levels get lower and lower and lower. And you can feel it, like it fatigues you and you can feel, and he's like, no, it's like, I can breathe really well. We can all breathe really well. Is that just a hallucination and they're well, really dying? Maybe, yeah, maybe. But he's like, this is kind of weird. So he keeps on, on moving through and it's a complete darkness except for the beams that were coming from their torches. And they get into this this particular area, which has been previously closed off. And um, there's like water dripping through the stone dark, and it's all very kind of, um, already has a supernatural feel to it. But he gets his students to perform this task. And it's very simple. He says, look, just close your eyes, sit and meditate. Uh, And just go with whatever you're guided by, like inside your mind. So your thoughts and and not implying entities or anything else like that, right? And they open their eyes and people like, oh my God, they can see auras above people's heads, like Mm. each and every, and he's like, well, and it's funny how he treats it. Like, it feels like he treats this as being like, that happens every time. And it's like, Mm. it's not a big deal for him and it must be the effect. And now he starts saying, look, you know, I was very academic and eloquent explaining to them that this is some kind of optical effect retained by the visual memory of the brain, I'm like, mate, you're in this sacred location that's got some weird geometry in it and people are seeing, you know, lights above people's heads after this. Maybe there's more to it. But I think he comes to that kind of idea later on because there's this woman sitting next to him. She's freaked out. Like She's completely freaked out. He's like, oh, maybe you'd like to share your experience? He's like, what's wrong? And she's got these wide eyes, like these really wide eyes. And he said that her look was like an obsidian knife, like cutting into him. And It's almost like she's possessed by something and she's like he's here he's here and she's, and he's like what, what what are you talking about she says i have by my side at this very moment a young man who is not of this time he's whispering in a language that i don't understand but he's trying to talk to you and she's like he says i'm you know this hardened unbeliever like this i can't believe what my ears are hearing and he's like, oh, you're being silly. And she's like, no, no, he wants to talk to you. Who it's, is this woman? She's just part it's of the Just a group. random student, right? Okay. It's just part of the group. But she's tried to have this experience. And the entity inside this is now trying to get through to him. So um, he dismisses it, right? He just dismisses it and says, okay, you know, like, okay, that's that's really great. But he's still, there's something going on because he's
1: got this shiver
0: in his body. From
1: well, you it. need to... Converse with the entity because they can tell you where to dig, yeah, where to right. find exactly.
0: Stuff. <laughs> so he doesn't think too much of it until Jesus later on. He he leaves, right? He takes the five of them out, and he gets the second group to come through. Now the second group comes through, and he repeats the whole experience, right? And he repeats it with the you know these other kids or these other students. And this time, the young man to his right, once again in the north gallery, facing a certain way repeats exactly the same thing that the woman had said. The guy was back and he was like trying to get this other guy to get his attention. And he's like asking, him, he's like, what? He's like, look, I don't know. He's not from this era. He's speaking in a strange language. I can't even get it. I don't know what it is, but something is trying to connect with us. And this was happening beneath this great pyramid. So the idea is here is that whether it was directly targeting Jesus or just the, the actual Function of this pyramid mm. was to provide access and communication to other or interdimensional beings. And it's now long been lost. Our understanding of that is gone, and yet you have an archaeologist that goes down there, you know, very up until this point, hardline, hard nosed skeptic, and having these repeated experiences where they didn't talk to each other. The is, two students didn't talk to each is other. Is that what they're suggesting in the book? That's the actual function of the no. It the doesn't building? go into that because it's just an anecdote. Okay. These, the, all these stories, they feel like they're things that you would never see published in a journal. And indeed, like, when I went looking sure, for them, of course. I couldn't find... It's so like there's nothing, like there's none of it whatsoever. But it is good that they wanted to put their names forward, you know, to mm-hmm. describe what's going on. But then you have the second experience. And I can go, look, it's cool. You know, it's a tunnel. We've heard some of the stories about, you know, what's happened underneath the pyramids in Egypt. You know, even Crowley was in one of them at one point. You know, there's all strange stuff going on. Uh, if you recall, there was that great book by... Um, was it the... Oh, I can't remember if it was the... Who's the guy that wrote the, um...
1: The 1996 classic, The Cube.
0: No, not the 1996 classic, The Cube, but I'll go back to the. I'll come back to it in a moment. Uh, Robert De Niro. It wasn't Robert De Niro. So anyway, I'll come back to it. The point is, right, is that there's a multitude of people that have had uh, experience in these pyramid locations. And the impression is, you know, the suggestion is, is that, well, they act as like accumulators for psychic energy or communication with otherworldly beings. Who really knows what's going on? Um... But in this particular experience, so I'll come down here and I'll bring up. So this is uh, Lewis Cruz. He's also uh, an archaeologist, obviously from the National School, and uh, he describes this very intriguing story where essentially a group of students contact him, and he's got access. Like he's one of the gatekeepers to have access to this particular you know temple, this pyramid of the sun, and they say to him, "Look, um, we've got a friend, and we'd like to take him down into the uh, the galleries of the temple." And he's like, um, why? Like, why would you Why would you need to do that? Like, are you just showing? No, he's paralyzed and we think we can perform a ritual down there. Oh my save gosh, it. right, okay. And he's like, I'm interested. Like, he's interested, right? So he's like, okay, fine. Yep, if you want to do that, how many people are you taking? And it's like, oh, it's not many, but, you know, we'll, we'll take him down there. So a fully uh, quadriplegic guy, they carry him down this six or seven meter spiral metal staircase. Didn't you tell this story on the Plus Show? No, I just, I just, this is what I... I Wasn't hear there about. another story of someone who had a... No, I hinted at it. Okay. This is the story that I hinted at, well, right? We already so know what was, happens. Well, he was scanned, right? <laughs> because what happens is, is he goes down and they, they all go down to this tunnel and it's very difficult to access. They try very hard, as I explained in the previous story, you know, uh, and it doesn't just say anything about the air or anything that it was it was bad, but they get this guy and they lay him down uh, facing the west exit. They put a camera in front of him. They begin recording. They turn off their flashlights and they proceed to chant. They're doing this weird chant and it was incomprehensible, like completely incomprehensible. And it was darkness. He couldn't see anything. But as this chanting is happening, this sense of time is lost. And he's like, I think we're in the cave for about two hours, like two hours. <clears throat> Pardon me that this was taking place. Um, at the end of the chants, they turn on the lamps and they all stand up, except for the quadriplegic, obviously. And uh, they go and watch the video, like inside the temple. And now, as they're watching the video, they're fast forwarding through it and they stop because it was complete darkness. But this was an infrared you know, um, lens that they had on it. They watch as the chanting. In complete darkness, suddenly emerges a kind of sphere, this phosphorescent green large sphere. It descended from the very top and came down through the chamber, through the gallery, and entered into the head of the paraplegic man or the quadriplegic man on the floor. <laughs> the sphere then starts illuminating the lateral part of his body and spinning around, illuminating inside with some type of weird phosphorescent green X-ray spinning in gray tones, sorry, green and gray tones in and out of his body. Now, they're reeling from the shock. like right? They're just shocked. Uh, he says this icy feeling starts coming over me, but curiosity. And he must
1: be thinking, I'm going to be cured. This is it. I'm going to walk. I'm well, just going to leap out of this chair, go for a run. Well, we don't know what happens
0: to him, right? Because uh, as this is occurring, one of the other people that's there uh, sees a figure this figure suddenly materializes. Not in the video, this figure just materializes. Now, I don't know because of the translation if they can all see it, if only one can see it. But one of the guys there, he goes, it's the guardian, he's here. And this may have been the man that previously was talking to the other students in the other case, trying to get through, right? Right. He says, I can see him. Um, He can see our thoughts. uh, He feels eternal. And there's a great heaviness within him. Uh, and he's just like looking and he kind of describes this out of era kind of figure, right? It's the guardian. It's the guardian of this this gallery that they're witnessing. And um, he's like, I have to get out of here. Like, they, And they do. They all leave. They all exit the tunnel, uh, drag the, the guy, guy out wheelchair. in his wheelchair, you know, <laughs> push his in wheelchair
1: <laughs> back up, you know, six or seven meters. So he's not, so a green ball enters into his head, mm-hmm. moves through his body. And that's it? Like nothing
0: happens? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't get out of his chair? No, nothing, right? And this is uh, Lewis, of course. is just like, what the hell just happened? Like, yeah, what, what did what, just happen? What is going on? So he says that, uh, he first of all asks about the, the Guardian. He's like, what the hell did the Guardian look like? And it's like, oh yeah, he was tall, bronze skin, uh, feathered headdress, uh, his arms crossed at chest height. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was just just hanging around in the sight. He's like, uh, okay, that's interesting. Um, but then everything kind of goes quiet. He says he finds out, you know, a little bit later on. I don't know how much time passes, but eventually he gets in contact with this group and he asks about the fate of their quadriplegic companion. You know, he, he's excited. He's like, "Well, maybe the spiritual entities had uh, fixed him." And they go, "Well, no, actually, um, one of our other friends who can talk to the spirits—they uh, established communication with these entities, like with this this feathered being that was down there." He's like, "No, no, we can't take away his paraplegia or quadriplegia because that's his destiny." That's right. That's what you mentioned on the Plus show. That that's his karma. He had to deal with it. He Had to deal with it. They couldn't get rid of it. Um, well, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is a shame. You know. So, um, but it's just uh, amazing that people are having. You know. The, again, this is coming from archaeologists. This is coming from, you know, people that are supposed to be in the space of having, you know, very, you know, academic uh, focus mm-hmm. and, you know, not. You know, kind of given to this kind of stuff. But there's this other story I want to describe to you from from Thomas uh, Cordova. And I think Thomas Cordova, that name's familiar. I think we've touched on some of his work before. Um, but again, he's from um, Harvard University, I believe, or has been associated with, with Harvard University. Uh, but basically, he goes through this entire... Story, which I won't go into great detail. Pick up the book and translate it, or if you speak Spanish, grab the the book book and translate it. (laughs) But he describes this really cool incident where uh, he goes into this particular location, and when he goes into the location, it's uh, just on the outskirts of Mexico City, Mm -hmm. and he finds that they've they're kind of you know very carefully. He says it's like performing a delicate surgery, excavating this site, and as they're excavating the site, they come across this sculpture. It's about sixty centimeters high. He says it's it's ex- exquisite, like it's just this beautiful sculpture, uh, sculpture. And they want to try and get it out, and they're trying to get it out, and they've got uh, three men are trying to pull this thing. Uh, there's no, there's nothing holding in place. There's no um, like you know, mortar or anything like that. There's no reason for this to not be able to be moved. And they bring in pulleys and they start trying to pull it out, and they hook it up to a car, and they mm. they can't move it. Right? And he's like, what is going on? And he's like. hmm. You know, in some archaeological digs, sometimes there's a pin. There's some weird pin, you know, somewhere in the back of it, attached to it. So he starts like trying to look for a pin. There's just nothing, right? But somehow there was an obsidian blade. There was like this obsidian blade on the back of it. And what he does, he runs his hand over. He's like, ah! And as soon as he pulls his hand back, still sharp. It's like it's still sharp. It cut, and this blood is going everywhere, right? And as soon as that happens, the sculpture just like air goes. (laughs) What? <laughs> this is Indiana Jones stuff. He's like, I realized what it was. Only a blood offering could pr- in ex- could be provided in exchange for its freedom. Wait, so what's happening to the,
1: what's going, foof? what does that mean? It's what?
0: still, it's like, it's suddenly, like, it's not as heavy as you'd expect. But they, and they can move the they statue. They can move the statue. Okay. Yeah, they can oh, Sorry, yeah. Yeah, you're doing motions.
1: I'm I doing motions, I which no not a lot about. Of I don't know if there. that was a ghost. I don't know what that motion no, as was. As he
0: cuts his hand, the, um, the structure just suddenly releases. Okay. Like, it just suddenly moves. And it's like still a stone, like it's a 60 centimeter, you know, stone object, but it's not heavy. You know, it's like maybe 10 kilos or something. It just moved. Like three men, a car and pulley system Mm. could not move this thing from its spot. The moment he cuts himself with some weird obsidian sharp thing built into the back of it, he does this offering, he could move it. So it's like this whole... So it's
1: not a mechanism or anything. It's not like some kind of uh, Scooby-Doo thing where they find a hidden wheel. It's it's magic, right? It's it's, some kind of... uh, It's, it's an occult thing, yeah.
0: And so, and there's one other story that I'll give you before we go into our, our plus extension. Uh, it's the story of uh, of Paquito, right? So this is um, described by uh, Diaz and Gonzalez. You know, they're both graduates from the School of Anthropology. Um, they've just got like very little anecdotes of experiences that they've had. In fact, there was one that was described by uh, Gonzalez, where he said that um, much like the Singapore, remember Singapore with the falling marbles. Have you heard yeah, like yeah. with Singapore so people in apartment buildings say that they hear the sound of falling marbles and rolling across their building or in their apartments but they can't ever find the sound uh, he describes something similar he says look there's been times where I've been working alone uh, in particular locations restoration you know locations when I've heard what sounds like a large marble falling to the ground and rolling across the ground. Now, he says, I go to check. The
1: conventional explanation is that this is pipes, right?
0: This right, is something that's right. Pipes. Yeah, that's pipes. Because I've heard that sound sure. a bunch of times. Yeah, we all have. But uh, he says he went to look for the marble because it sounds like a, it wasn't a marble. It sounded like a heavy metal ball. He said in the spot where the marble had fallen, you can see that the tile has been smashed. Oh. But there's no marble anywhere. And he says then, uh, after the tile was replaced... Once again, I heard the marble and the tile was smashed. So it's like this weird kind of poltergeist like kind of experience, but then, uh, and this comes up in a number of these cases, and I might do one in the plus extension just before we get into it. Um, But there's this one particular story where I think um, it's Diaz. She goes into a a particular site, it was during the, the pandemic, so it was difficult to move around. She finally gets approval to be able to go to one of these sites. And uh, she heads into this particular location in this, this old building. And when she's in the building, she says, like, oh, it's very peaceful, but there's a, a skeleton there, right? That's been discovered. It's being worked on. And because of the pandemic, it's been ignored for a long period of time. So she's like, she finally gets to work with it and she starts removing the dirt and the, the layers from it. And, you know, she has a great day at work and then she comes home. Now, when she goes home, uh, she's sitting watching television with her. With her uh, sister, she goes to the bathroom, and when she comes back, her sister is freaked out—like really freaked out. She's like, "What? What's wrong? What the hell's wrong with you?" And she's like, uh, "A boy about fifteen years old. He was wet. He had brown hair that was wet as well. Uh, his eye sockets were completely black. His skin had purple skin tones. He just walked into the room and dematerialized before me." <laughs> And she's like, "Oh my god!" Because what she'd been doing all day. He
1: sounds sick. He sounds like he needs to go and get a shot of something. Well, she called the medication. She called it Pequito. But basically,
0: when she was performing the restoration or the you know the fixing of this um, skeleton, you know the maintenance of this skeleton. Uh, she worked out or they worked out that it possibly was a 12 to 15 year old boy that had fallen in the river, uh, had been of ill health. So that's why he would have had purple skin. But the eyes, the eyes being black in the skull, when she was restoring the skull in the eye socket was uh, the tip of a blade of a knife. And so that's possibly how he had died. And it was like, she believes that this was some type of restless spirit that had come home with her. From the skeleton, and that's something else that comes up a lot. And I will describe, you know, one of those stories in, in Pl- the plus extension coming up, where people bring these things home. You know, they go to sites. Um, you know, there was a really great example of a guy that was uh, um, diving, and when he was diving, um, he had gone into you know one of these spectacular holes, like these these deep caves that are full of of water, uh, and they're all through the Yucatan. Like they're really spectacular, and he'd gone down, and there must have been some. Um, you know, importance to this particular site because he dives down and he gets stuck. Like he sees his friend start to struggle because there's something wrong with his, uh, his vest kind of inflates. It just suddenly inflates for no reason. So he's struggling. He's up against a wall because he can't surface. He's trying to get him out and he pulls it and he gets to the surface and he brings this guy up when all of a sudden um, they're trying to bring him up and they're trying to back this, this truck that they've got with him on a rope and they can't bring him up because there's just so much weight on him. And it even seems like he's being pulled down, right? Is there something going on. Um, and apparently we find out later on for people that are familiar spiritually with the site, this particular site where he'd been diving was known to be infested with the Lucias, which are those little goblin type creatures, right? And these lucius, 10 or 12 of them had latched onto him as he was coming up. Uh-huh. Out. Now, no one could see it, yeah, sure. but they could see the effect of the weight upon him of where they could not pull him out. And somehow these. Did I don't know, he get out? Did he drown? Yeah, somehow he managed to get pulled out. And I think because they said a prayer or something, or paid respects to the site, something like that. Throw a gold all, coin in. Yeah, and they all just disappeared and he was able to be pulled out. And this is the kind of thing that's repeated, you know, uh, many of these times that these people are being um, you know, affected by these invisible entities and forces. So, truly, uh, a difficult book if you don't speak English, but. Uh, sorry, so don't speak English. If you don't speak Spanish, Uh so a <laughs> translate. But it truly is fascinating like if you've got the time to sit and go through it and it's uh it really is an incredible story of it demonstrates that there is far more to the world than the material far more
1: yeah it's interesting that it's uh you know it's modern academics really I mean this is this yeah. is an academic field yeah uh and it is their real names it is their it's real, their real names it's it's not pseudonyms. That, it's their real names it's their How real would stories you know, though Well, that's a good question. Yeah,
0: that's... But then again, I guess you could look these people up to see, you know, if they're at these institutions and and these universities. I did.
1: None of them exist.
0: Of course they do. (laughs) Of course they do. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's just like some of the stories in here. I mean, many of them, though, uh, I find to be fascinating in the sense that um, animals can see them, right? There was a woman that was working on this one particular site, and as she went into the site everything was fine, right? There's just monkeys around and it was fine. She goes into the site, spends all day at the site. And all of a sudden, all these things like attached to her, but she doesn't know, but she starts feeling fatigued and she feels uncomfortable. So she starts wandering back. And as she wanders back, all the monkeys go apeshit. Like they just go absolutely nuts. Like unlike, and they're staring at her and they're freaked out and they're aggressive. And she's like, what the hell? And she goes back into her camp. And it's funny, I don't know if the word cook is a way to describe, like, a, either a spiritual person or if they're, I don't know what it is, but every, in many of these stories, mm. they get back to their base camp and the cook is like, Yeah, um, you've got entities attached to you. You caught them at the site over there and we have to do an offering now How to get rid of them. The cook so the cook, like, does alcohol, uh, does like, all it must little... be a translation issue. I think it's a translation issue. But then again, maybe it's just the laborers or maybe it's just the people that are familiar with these. And that's exactly what happened. He performs this ritual. All the things went away that she picked up at this site. As soon as she walked past the monkeys again, they're all back to normal.
1: Well, we're going to shift gear in the plus extension coming up. We're going to look at Diana Pasulka's new book, Encounters, Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences, the long-awaited follow-up from her 2019 classic American Cosmic. There's some really intriguing stories coming up. As I said, there's an Australian twist as well. Mm. And we're going to talk about this idea that the UFO secrecy, those that hold knowledge, they don't write it down. They pass it on orally. It's like an oral initiation in the style of uh, Western mystics going back to Socrates, Plato and Pythagoras. There's a kind of... uh, Gnostic implication that people are initiated into this knowledge. And again, from a uh, previous book, she spoke about this scientist named Tyler, who we know his identity now. But again, he spoke about this hierarchy mm. and the hierarchy right above us. There are these individuals in, that are associated with intelligence agencies, not necessarily the agencies themselves, but are associated with that world and are perhaps part of uh, secret groups, unacknowledged groups, unacknowledged programs uh, that seem to be part of this oral initiation in regards to UFOs. So we'll talk about that after the break on our PLUS extension. If you want to sign up, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash PLUS. All the details are there. You get access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And of course, PLUS members get entirely exclusive shows every single Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content when you sign up for PLUS. PLUS members also get uh, access to a higher quality MP3 version of the show, so you're getting a higher sound quality. You also get a totally ad-free version of the show as well. And if you sign up for our MU Max tier, you get access to our massive back catalogue, going back 16 plus years of show. So sign up today, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you're on plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week.